What I like about Whitehead is he gives a, what I would say is a co coherent and deep way of understanding what interconnection and interflowing means mm -hmm. and how that, you know, the implications of that for science, religion, and mm -hmm. how, we, how we live. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Today on the show, we have John Buchanan. Uh, I'll introduce him after I say welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So John is the co-editor of this book, Rethinking Consciousness. Um, first, I'll just say really quickly how I found it. Um, a, a month, two months ago, we interviewed Dr. James Carpenter about his first sight theory. And at the end of that, he said, oh, well, you should check out this book that's coming out or just came out um, because it's got an article by John Buchanan talking about my, you know, Carpenter's theory from the perspective of process philosophy, the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead. So I checked it out and got the book, and we are going to be talking about that today in addition to just a kind of overview of who Whitehead was. So John is... Uh, he's got his PhD from Emory's Graduate Institute of the Liberal Arts, and his focus is on, I guess, the intersection of process philosophy, Whitehead's philosophy, and transpersonal psychology. Would that be a, a correct way of phrasing your your particular specialty, John? Yes, it would. Okay, great. <laughs> so, um, well, we're going to get into transpersonal psychology because we were talking a bit um, before before doing this uh, interview. And I mentioned to John that I, would, I, I was not really familiar with transpersonal psychology. So in addition to um, getting into what might be new for a lot of people, process philosophy, maybe we will, we will get into your specialty, John, which is uh, the intersection with transpersonal psychology. But to back up and start from the beginning, I guess we should let our listeners and viewers know who Alfred North Whitehead was, because we've mentioned him on the show numerous times, but mostly in passing and not really in any great depth. So could you tell us a bit about who Whitehead was? Sure. He uh, from from England, I think born in the mid-1860s, went to Cambridge, uh, where he majored in mathematics, which was his primary field for some part of his life. Um, he, for those of you who know Bertrand Russell, that used to be a good way to mention him, but not so much anymore. But Bertrand Russell was one of his students. And together they did a 10 year project and did a, I believe a three volume work called the Principia Mathematica, which was an attempt to uh, ground mathematics in, in basic logical, uh, uh, language, which was since math, you know, that was an attempt to give mathematics a reason for working in the universe, since otherwise it's just floating around as this, these numbers that seem to do interesting things. And of course, that's famous, the Percipia is famous for its refutation by Gödel, who showed that it's impossible to have a system that's complete but non contradictory. Um, but nonetheless, it's considered one of the great intellectual feats of uh, modern times. Uh, Whitehead then expanded his thinking into philosophy of science and philosophy of nature and mathematical physics. 
he uh, he was very familiar with the thinking of you know of, of the time and uh, had his own theory of relativity, which because he disagreed with some of Einstein's assumptions about the metaphysical nature of reality around measurement and the geometry of space. Um, he then, when he retired from uh, England, he went to Harvard, where he became went, went on the philosophy department um, and wrote his his more deeper philosophical, uh, metaphysical, speculative philosophy works, including Process and Reality, Adventures of Ideas, and Science and Modern and the Modern World, um, and really was quite a force at that time. A lot of people uh, thought his thinking and his approach to, uh, <clears throat> to science and the uh, religion and the nature of reality was helpful for, uh, for how should I say, com combating some of the materialistic and atheistic tendencies that were coming into dominance. Mm -hmm. um, well, did um, maybe we can get into that just a little bit. Um, well, what, the question that came up in my mind while you were giving that introduction so far is, why don't we, why isn't Whitehead more of a, I wouldn't say a household name because few philosophers are, except for maybe Plato and, you know, Aristotle, but why isn't he more well known in, in, let's say, mainstream philosophy these days? Any ideas? I'd say for two reasons. Uh, one, his ideas are quite revolutionary and, and went on a very different uh, track than, uh, than, than philosophy took in the 1950s, you know, went into analytic philosophy became very, a, a major force, which is, uh, you know, really, really just analyzing language and, and think th and how we can think about ideas in, uh, in phrase, phrase, phrase questions and phrase the issues. And I, th I think Whitehead would have thought these were very, you know, interesting questions, but rather petty in the large scale. So he, mm. He, he, he attempted to do something that a lot of uh, philosophers had decided since Kant was impossible. He wanted to do metaphysics. What, what, is, the <clears throat> what is the nature of reality? How do we know, know the world? And, uh, and that, you know, that's been on the decline since Kant decided you know, that really was a limited project. And what we really need to do is, uh, um, well, basically science took over from philosophy at that point. Mm. Mm -hmm. So his attempt to revive metaphysics is, you know, going against the major currents of the time. But secondly, his his philosophy is also quite novel and revolutionary and and, and difficult. Yeah. And his writing is not particularly easy, although I, I think it's good. A lot of people think he's particularly opaque. Mm -hmm. I think it's just because it's new and, and challenging. But um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's a second reason. Well, that, that <laughs> just reminded me of something that I find funny. We interviewed... Um, um, oh, I'm having a mind blank. The author of The Return of Holy Russia, um, Gary Lockman. So he wrote a book on basically the, the Russian philosophers of the, uh, the Silver Age, so the like, late 1800s in Russia. And in his book, he's got a line about um, Solovyov, one of these guys. And he said that Solovyov is one of the, if, if not the only readable philosopher. <laughs> like, and... Uh, you know, having having read not a not a whole lot of philosophy, I've you know that's probably probably a true statement because philosophy most philosophers are notoriously difficult for a, a layman to you know to to read and understand. I remember when I was at university taking a philosophy course, it was pretty difficult, and uh, 
um, yeah, it's difficult to to get into it, to to start into it, right? Um, so probably even more so for getting into Whitehead, would you say? In particular, <clears throat> process and reality. John Cobb, who is one of the experts in the field, once said to me that he didn't think even professional philosophers should try to read process and reality without someone who's familiar with the system to sort of guide them along the way and answer questions that might come up. Mm -hmm. Well, luckily um, for me, and I think for you too in your biography, I had I had an introduction to Whitehead um, that wasn't reading Whitehead himself, because I think if I would have started with Whitehead, I would have read a page and had no idea what was going on and just kind of given up. I found him through David Ray Griffin's works, um, and he's got several books on process philosophy, including one on parapsychology that is referenced in um, in Rethinking Consciousness in this volume, um, which I thought I think is a great book on the on the on the subject. So, it that's why whenever I talk to when I, whenever I talk about Whitehead to anyone, I recommend well just check out some of David Ray Griffin's books because he's such a a clear writer and um, not like not opaque in the slightest. He's uh, almost crystal clear in, in the, in the way he writes. And, um, but you had so maybe refresh my memory was, was your introduction to Whitehead through David Ray Griffin too, or did it just kind of coincide? My introduction was with William Beardsley, who yeah, I'm right. still going to send you one of his books, but I'm yes. waiting for another book to come in. Okay. But he was a, a New Testament scholar and a process theologian, hmm. uh, at, at Emory. And I caught him just before he retired. And then I did take an, a class with David Griffin out in Claremont uh, mm. on Whitehead, mm. uh, so, which was very helpful because he, he is he's extremely clear and, uh, and, he, and he was one of the co-editors of the revised, revised edition of Process and Reality. So mm. he, he knows it well. Right. I believe in that class he said something to the effect that he was working through Process and Reality for the seventh or eighth time and he thought he was finally beginning to get what Whitehead was saying. So. <laughs> Which I think a little bit of humor, but uh, but it, each each reading does give a deeper appreciation. Mm -hmm. Which is what makes an introductory show into Whitehead so difficult, of course. So we're going to try to, well, we're going to try to crack that nut and and, and uh, get everything possible out of it, I suppose. But uh, that will be impossible. So maybe to get into um, some of the actual ideas, you mentioned that that process philosophy is kind of, it, it is a, a radical, like revolutionary philosophy. Um, it kind of, it, it, while it has, let's say influences from pa the, the past, you know, 2000 plus years of the history of philosophy, there is so much that's new and revolutionary in it. And part of that is because Whitehead, one of his goals was to make a, a modern philosophy um, that could account for what scientists, what we were learning from science at the time. So like relativity and quantum theory. So I'd say his is, his is a modern or even postmodern, if you count modernism as the, the, the previous philosophies, either dualistic or, or mechanistic that came, you know, that were, that were common in the 1800s and now currently in the 2000s as well. Um, but that was his goal to to create a, a philosophy for our times, and those are pretty much still the basic, you know, or physical concepts that we operate under today in our mechanistic, materialistic philosophy. Um, that uh, well, those scientific concepts. But his philosophy actually, arguably, accounts for those and 
is was actually designed to account for them. So in that sense, it was, you could, I guess you could say that his philosophy was as revolutionary as quantum theory, because it was a, a philosophy that kind of subsumed or took quantum theory into account. Um, do you have any comments on, on just that and how that, how, how that played out? And if not, we'll go to something else. Yeah, I, I think that's vitally important. The fact that he, his philosophy, I would say, is congruent with modern science. Not not all not all of its metaphysical assumptions, mm -hmm. which a lot of scientists pretend they don't have, but you know tend to tend to appear in their thinking when they argue against certain ideas, such as that you know telepathy is impossible because action at a distance is impossible. But you know why is action at a distance impossible? Well. You know, of course it is, but you know that—that's you know that's one of the assumptions that just mm -hmm. that that um, makes uh, that makes uh, defending parapsychology and uh, other types of uh, uh, other other areas of of um, of uh, experience difficult. Um, but you know, Whitehead's probably most famous quote is something to the effect that philosophy in the last 2000 years is all a footnote to Plato. Mm -hmm. But he, 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 you know, incorporates uh, most of the history of philosophy, a lot of the major figures in his thinking, and in, in a way just revises certain aspects of each of them. You know, he draws on what he thinks each of the strengths were, and then points out areas where he thinks they went awry, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which puts him, you know, right in the philosophical tradition. But, um, but the point, you know, so what he what he does with Kant, for example, puts him out of sync with where philosophy has gone since Kant. Since they assume they assume Descartes, they assume Hume, Locke, and uh, and Kant, and he wants to go a different direction. Mm -hmm. I, I believe he says he sort of turns Kant on on his head that he had the great insight that all experience is uh, <clears throat> is is. Uh, integrated integrative but that he's he he thinks that the uh the unity the the unity of apperception starts experience rather than is the conclusion of experience so whitehead sees yeah as with a quantum event all all, all of the all of the past events flowing into the new event and mm -hmm. forming a new unification rather than in in kant's idea there's this uh unconscious process that creates a unification of, of the data. Mm -hmm. Well, I would just have a question then, um, since we're talking about that, uh, these, these processes going on, um, could you kind of situate the, his, uh, Whitehead's process philosophy kind of in the tradition of process philosophy and is, um, in, and distinguish it from, you know, the more static kinds of philosophies that, you know, I know that's not a very good... Like why process? Yeah, yeah why a process philosophy? You know, you know, one other interesting way to get a bearing on his thinking is from Leibniz, who had, you know, these monads um, that were sort of these atomic entities. And, you know, for anyone that knows Leibniz, you know, he added, basically added, added windows. He opened up these, uh, these, well, maybe that's not the best way to go. Probably everyone doesn't know Leibniz. You know, what's kind of funny is that 
I would say the way science operates and the way most and the way most of us think in the world is in process terms. You know, we have have, have you know the world seems alive to us. Um, you know, I mean, when science study, you know, biology is studying cellular activities. They find all kinds of activity. You know, they, they're they're synthetic. There's create creativity going on everywhere. Yet when you know science begins to talk about how, how we see the world, somehow this idea of billiard balls running into each other is is the inter, is the way things interact, mm-hmm. and that you know that, that to think of. Uh, I mean, you know, you know how long it took to think that animals might actually think and have emotion. Well, that was impossible because Descartes said it was, you know, that they don't. You know, only humans have souls. So, you know, these things hang on for so long. Um, so, so just to add subjectivity to the world at large is one of the important things that Whitehead does. Mm-hmm. And the and and the way you know, the way he does it is by by saying everything's made up of these momentary events, which uh, I think that's a somewhat misleading term because what he's talking about are momentary bursts of feeling or primitive experience, unconscious experience. So, so everything's, you know, for those who have taken psychedelics and suddenly the world seems alive and everything's moving and it's, everything's happening. That's kind of what he's talking about. <laughs> the, 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 things are, the things are flowing. Things are interacting. Things are interconnected. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, and what I like about Whitehead is he gives a, what I would say is a co- coherent and deep way of understanding what interconnection and interflowing means, mm-hmm. and how that, you know, the implications of that for science, religion, and mm-hmm. how we how we live. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the things that is so amazing to me about when I whenever I read Whitehead is. Now, I get the impression just from the little I've read about the, the history and the influence that his thinking that led to process and reality was primarily based on his, I guess, his thinking on science and his thinking on nature and that uh, that, th- th- that those were the, the primary, like that was the primary data that went into his, like the creation of his metaphysics. Would you, like, short answer, would you say that's probably correct or not correct? I would say that's the thinking that went into his philosophy of nature and philosophy of science as okay. he was developing those in England. And when he, <coughs> however, when he wanted to expand that into his, uh, into his speculative philosophy, which is his uh, mature metaphysical system, um, you know, then, then he was adding, then, then he wanted to encounter the philosophical tradition and work, okay. work those ideas in. But um he, he was atheistic and agnostic most of his life. So he wasn't looking for a way to find spirituality in nature. You know, that, yeah. that came in um, as he worked through these ideas. And just, I, I think that re, the main reasons he included uh, in, in some of his la- final thinking, sort of a, a central intelligence or presence was because he felt that order in the universe was not explainable without some kind of guiding force that was pushing towards order mm-hmm. to yeah. counteract the natural dissolution and uh and chaos that happens and um i mean he found you know he found the things from religion to be significant but i don't think he would have found that uh definitive you know because 
Rouge's experience is, is a little vague for a scientist and a logician. Mm-hmm. Um, although, his, you know, I mean, his family had a, uh, I believe his father was a minister and his father's father was a minister. So, he, you know, he wasn't ignorant of the religious dimensions of, uh, mm-hmm. of life. So, okay, that, that clears that up for me. So that makes it a little less surprising that his his philosophy would then account for so much and have so many implications is because that was basically built into it. Um, I think like you, I think like you say in your paper is that, and I know that David Ray Griffin says this, it's that um, one of the goals of philosophy, according to, to Whitehead and what he tried to accomplish in, in his works was to account for all the data, basically, you know, everything within experience be everything that you can experience because um, a philosophy that that brackets off a certain chunk of reality and can't explain everything outside of those brackets can't be said to be a comprehensive and, and true philosophy really if it can't, can't account for a whole you know chunk of reality so there are implications for religion and psychology and even even for the further development of our science and the understanding of our of our science. Well, and I just want to interject too because you think, uh, you know, there's just I think there's a general tendency to think that philosophy is just silly uh, wiseacring, you know, the philosophizing. Uh, but you know, I uh, one of my favorite books that I read in the past couple of years was David Berlinski's The Advent of the Algorithm. And he goes deep into the philosophy of mathematics and Leibniz and the history of philosophical thought that led to the advent of the algorithm, which is responsible mainly for the world that we live in today, for us being able to have this conversation and for us to be able to employ a lot of the technologies that we have. So, um, you know, having a philosophy that is objectively true, you know, especially based in, in a worldview that isn't materialistic, um, could, you know, they say that uh, a change in worldview could change the mm. world viewed. You know, I'm just, just wanted to interject that really quick. Uh, I like that. I like that turn of phrase. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, me too. I may use it someday. <laughs> I can't remember who said it, but it was me. <laughs> um, yes. Well, the, you know, you know, Whitehead is explicit in, uh, in his descriptions of wanting to account for all experience. He has some wonderful quotes like, um, you know, that experience awake, experience asleep, experience drunk, experience sober. And he goes through this long list that, that all, you know, that's all part of our encounter with the world and with reality. And it all needs to be part of, uh, it needs to be taken into account, as you say, when we build a, uh, a, a system that supposedly is, you know, defined is, that is explaining uh, what the fundamental reality under, underlying all of these uh, experiences are. He also says in Process and Reality that I believe the the most important, I don't think say most important, but the central uh, goal of speculative philosophy is to fuse religion and science into one coherent picture. Which is which is an interesting thing to say for a for a philosopher, a scientist, and somebody who you know, had been atheistic most of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might be helpful to um, talk about uh, David Griffin's uh, differentiation between a uh, 
a, a naturalist, uh, super naturalism, for Sam, do you remember naturalism, mm -hmm. Sam, naturalism, PPP, yep. mm -hmm. which I think is you know, sort of a fundamental difference. I was, I was going to say how that, that, uh, that, uh, well, I guess since uh, maybe since Descartes, science has tended to rely on sensory information as the only reliable um, evidence we have about the nature of the world. And by sensory, I mean conscious, you know, basically visual uh, sensory information. So what we see is what uh, is the data that we can use for science because that's you know that's what's dependable and that's what's and that's what's real, you know. In, in, the, in uh, Descartes' description of the external world, its extension. Um, now, you know, if, and if that's all that counts as evidence, then we, you know, we end up with this, you know, the materialistic science that developed out of it. Um, so, now, the three points, you know, what, what David Griffin calls, uh, I believe, naturalism SAM, is it's sensation, it has sensationalism, which is that, that only evidence from Basically, visual perception is is counted as uh, as the data that science uh, considers, and then it's it's atheistic, which has an interesting account of how that developed out of a uh, science that originally was designed to protect religion and and or protect Christianity anyway, mm -hmm. and it's uh, materialistic. You know that matter is devoid of activity, subjectivity. Um, and so he, but he says, you know, that isn't that isn't what naturalism needs to be. So, you know, there can be a scientific naturalism that doesn't have that quite that picture. So he has uh, naturalism PPP, which is prehensive um, prehension, which we should probably go into at some point, mm -hmm. as a alternative mode of perception that that uh, pre that provides data that we want we want to take into account. Uh, let's see, what are the the other two are oh, uh, uh, panentheism. Versus atheism, which is the notion that it's it's not the same as pantheism, which is that God is everything, but it's panentheism, which is that God is in everything and everything is in God, but everything also has its own reality and is not completely abs absorbed. You know, neither one absorbs the other. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just that God is is in our unconscious or part of our unconscious, and it's not that we're just uh, somehow a, a manifestation of God, but that God flows into us and we flow into God. But each of those, each of those movements have their own reality, mm -hmm. which I think is a wonderful. I mean, I, I think that fits the way a lot of people think about it. And it, and it allows, you know, helps allow for freedom for, uh, uh, for how things interconnect. And I, I, I think, I, I think that alone, you know, should be, needs to be developed a lot more perhaps by me someday, but, and uh, <laughs> obviously a lot of process theologians have, have already you know, mm -hmm. gone that route, but I, just, I think it's very rich, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of a way of clarifying a lot of the new age intuitions. And the, the third dimension is a uh, pan experientialism, which is another key feature of, uh, of Whitehead's thought, which is that everything is essentially made of primitive experience, mm -hmm. by which he means it's, an act, active integration of the past into a new moment of reality. Mm. And that's well, done by the direct incorporation of past events. Uh, on that subject, John, I, I found myself thinking about um, my experiences. 
uh, with some of these ideas. Um, how information or knowledge uh, may have in fact come to me out of nowhere and even contradicted some of my conscious uh, thought processes, but that nonetheless proved to be valid or correct, that, that you know, there were these prehensions or unconscious uh, bits of knowledge that, that made their way into my awareness on some level. And I, I was trying to um, understand uh, how that worked for myself, how, how these ideas are born out in my own experience, because um, there, there's all this theoretical uh, understanding, but, but to make sense of it or to, uh, to create an analogy with one's own experience of life, for instance. A moment ago, you, you spoke about the inflow and the outflow. Uh, we, we're, God is a part of us and we're a part of it, but we're also separate. Um, so I guess the question I'm trying to formulate is, in, in writing particularly your chapter in the book, uh, are there any experiences that you've had uh, or realizations where the, the validity of prehension or, or psi knowledge was something that um, became evident to you, that you would follow this line of, of thought to explain it in terms of Whitehead, for instance? More generally, I think this this idea, you know, you know, Whitehead, at least the way I, I would understand a Whiteheadian notion of how the human mind works, is that there's um, there are these there's a flow of moments of experience, most which are unconscious, but which also have a conscious element of as the integration completes, and these are in very close interaction with, with the neurons in the brain as it flow back and forth. Uh, so, so the data from, and the body in general, so the flow of information and sensation and, un, and unconscious processing is flowing into these moments, which also have their own unconscious processing. But what makes this, this even different than most, uh, most accounts that include a, an element of mind that's in some way uh, independent of, of the brain is that the, the, at the beginning of each of these moments of experience, not only is the, is the uh, data and feeling from the body and the brain flowing in with information, but also it's more, this, these, these psyche level moments are also open to the entire to the entire past events are flowing in. So the universe in general is flowing in also. Um, you know, m most of our awareness tends to be of the sensory data and the, and the data from our own past moments, your memories and general uh, thoughts that flow through from something we we're thinking about yesterday. But the potential is there for mystical experiences of, uh, of a higher power of parapsychological, you know, I'm I'm open to your thoughts, you know, not just at, at a fund at a fundamental level. My unconscious is being flooded by the events from your brain and for, from your experience. Um, so, I, so you know, this this offers 
sort of an un unlimited potential for, you know, for transpersonal and, and mystical phenomenon to occur potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's why, you know, that's the general reason I found this of interest. The particular reason I got fascinated with uh, transpersonal or looked into transpersonal psychology was taking psychedelics, basically. I mean, I already been interested in hypnosis and, you know, some, some Eastern thought. But when I, when I tried psychedelics, I thought, well, something really different is going on here. And um, I had one particular experience where, which I would call a, I don't know how full blown, but a powerful mystical experience where it felt thing, some larger entity was along with a lot of archetypal experience. I was encountering some entity of great power outside, you know, coming, flowing into me from outside as it were. And th this motivated, motivated me even more to find a, um, should we say a theological dimension to things? Before that, it was more just like, well, there's kind of a mystical notion there. You know, things are alive, things are happening. There's something going on, but this added on a, um, to, a to the spiritual dimension, added more of a theological dimension. Mm -hmm. That was the most powerful experience I had of things flowing in of that nature. You know, there's always stuff like, you know, I wake up in the morning and three seconds later, I get a text from my girlfriend. You know, or I get, or the phone, you know, or I'm thinking about my sister, and the phone rings, and it's her. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, everyone has all the has a lot of these experiences. I, th I think, my my mother dreamed that her brother, who in World War II had uh, had died, and his plane had been shot down. And you know, a few weeks later, they found out his plane had been shot down over the Pacific. You know, on on that day. Mm -hmm. uh, if we don't have a way, if we don't have a way of saying how could this information, you know. If everything is material, then you know these are impossible, and they get ruled out automatically, and it's just coincidence. But if there's a way that this information could be flowing into our experience, then you know we can take you know I don't know say take them seriously, but we can add them to our picture of how the universe really works. Mm -hmm. Well, last week we interviewed Ken Peterson about his book on uh, what he calls the information system worldview. So um, his his goal wasn't as, um, I'd say, uh, expansive as Whitehead, but still, still he wanted to account for as much of what he, what he knows about science and what modern science says as possible. And the conclusion that he basically came to as a systems engineer was that on every level there's information processing and information processors, like uh, the way that that a lot of engineers and physicists and other scientists think about things such as an atom or uh, or the quantum process, is or or cells or molecules is as information processors of some sort as um, as these computational units that that take in information from the world and uh, even a a wide segment of the world and then somehow somehow incorporate that information into themselves, whatever they themselves are, and then uh, transform that information somehow to then respond to it and create something potentially new. And that, and that newness can be as simple as a repetition of a, of a past newness, so it's not really new. So I am in one state, I receive some information, I process it, and then I am now in this state. And that and 
Well, it's a, um, it's an interesting way of looking at the world because it is, it's very modern in the sense of it's contemporary. We are in the kind of information age. We're in a, the, the age of, of computation and information processors and looking towards quantum computing and things like that. So his, 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 his worldview, the information system worldview is, I think very, it's, it's got a lot more going for it than the naturalism Sam that, uh, that, uh, that Griffin talks about. So when I was reading his book, um, he doesn't get into philosophy. Like I, I wouldn't consider him a whiteheadian at all. I'm not sure if he's even familiar with him, but one of the things that he talks about when he gets up to the level, cause he starts at the, the tiniest level, you know, the, the level of energy inf- information and subatomic processes all the way up to humans. And so consciousness, perception, memory, values, uh, morality. And when he gets up to that level, he basically calls these conscious processes, these conscious phenomena experience, um, pure information processing. So when I saw that, I saw that, um, immediately my mind goes to, to Whitehead and to the conclusion, well, maybe it's the other way around that information process or that information processing is actually pure experience that in order for that kind of information processing to happen, that the, the thing doing the processing must be, uh, um, a something like, a, a, a subject of some sort. And so I think, so what I was doing in my mind is trying to reconcile this information system worldview, viewing the, viewing everything as information and information processing with a pan experiential, um, philosophy where it's not just, it's not just information being processed like by some inanimate computer that, that the, the processing, the, the reception transformation and, um, and then giving out of information is what minds, minds do. Um, or I guess, and maybe, maybe you can help me put that into Whiteheadian terminology because, um, would he, would he say that like a, a quantum or a, a subatomic particle or an atom has a mind per se, or how would, how would he categorize like the experience of something so simple, like a proton? Well, I think, I think it's probably safe to say that it'd be, it's difficult for us to imagine what that would be like. Oh, for sure. But, but, you know, he, he tends to use the idea of synthetic activity and, well, he uses feeling, you know, that the, mm, even yeah. events at that level are, are feeling, you know, he, at that level, he equates feeling with energy, basically. Energy is a, is a category of this, of the feeling that, uh, of the flow of feeling between events. So he, he uses that as a fundamental concept, which is, you know, he liked the romantic poets who saw the emotional tone and throb of the universe, you know, around them. Um, but you know the, the feeling is you know in a way another word for prehension, which is grasping of past events. And he talks about that as data. That you 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 know you that's another way he you know phrases what what you're taking from the past event is information about what it felt and or, or what it was experiencing. Uh, so uh, you know that I, I think one that you know that's a fruitful way of thinking about things, but. Too, I think you're. I think you're correct, and that's that's a limited picture to just see the data, 
you're sort of you're flattening out the experiential. It, you look at one dimension or one way of thinking about what that what these experiences are and what our experience is, because you know a lot of what we we experience is feeling and sensation and body tone. You know, it's it's not that we're just getting information. You know, mm -hmm. there's it, in, you know there's information embedded in that. But I think it's a, I think the you know experience you know even probably even at the atomic level is more yeah. complex than just a passing of information. You know, I, I read that and I sort of think that seems like something's missing. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. everything's just a flow of information. And I think what's missing is feeling and experience, as you said. Yeah, because it reminds me of Thomas Nagel's famous uh paper that he wrote i can't remember because i've never read it what is it like the what is it like to be a bat or something or the feeling of being a bat yeah, um that, that's as close as i could get yeah to the but title. because the the idea there was that uh well he eventually came around to a kind of panpsychist type philosophy but the idea was that there must be something it is like to be a bat so as opposed to you know being a being a you being a being a human and so I, I, I'd, I don't know. I can't remember if he pushes it that far back, back then, but, um, but I, I would push it so far as to say that, that there, there will always be something it's like to receive and process information. So the, the, the information transfer, when you see, when you, when you see that kind of cold informatic language being used for, for this kind of philosophy, um, like information processing that, um, that when when there is a transfer of information, let's say at, a, at the level of an electron or a proton, there must be something, it must be like something to receive that information. And that's what I think Whitehead would call feeling. So that energetic transfer, that the, what we call energy, is actually the feeling of that transfer. Whatever is being transferred is a transfer of a certain type of data. And even like I, the way I think about it is, um, in when we talked to Ken Peterson, we brought up the example of radiant energy and photons and the information that they carry. Well, the photon is like this this little tightly packed bundle of energy, and uh, even though it's probably not correct, like the the way I feel it is like that's a it's energetic. That that photon is probably really excited to be doing what it's doing, or at least you know there's there's at least some kind of some kind of like vivacity or or I don't even know the right word some some type of feeling to to be in that energetic state and then to smash into something and have this this meaningful encounter that then transfers this information to this other being and uh there's this exchange this handshake of of information and uh that's kind of it's one of the it's one of the reasons it's fun even though it might be difficult why it's fun to to read whitehead or to read about him is because the 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 world that he pictures the world that he paints is one that is alive it is like as if you were to take a romantic poet and then uh shove him in the brain of some um like stodgy english like mathematics professor and then you know just let him go at it and see what happens because there is this uh this like r rigorous ana analytical um logic married with this kind of romantic soul that sees the the life and the experience and the and the feeling and everything and uh just kind of well that kind of blows my mind there's a essay i think it's titled the brain in an ocean of feeling which you know if you picture the unit i think you know picture the universe as this 
ocean of feeling, you know, and, and with, you know, each occasion as a little wave coming out of it, you know, I, I think, uh, think uh, goes along with a, a lot of the, you know, the, the wave ocean descriptions that people often use of what, you know, what experience and what the world is like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I wish I could say more about what the subjectivity of a cell or a molecule or a photon, or I, I like your description a lot of the photon. I think, <laughs> I think, I think Whitehead would have loved that also, frankly. Um, uh, you know, I just, I, I probably should point out though, at, at the moment we would, we would probably consider the experience at all of these levels as being unconscious by our, by human, human standards anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but John Cobb is expanding. What Whitehead's notion of consciousness was quite uh, tight. You know, it was the the difference between what is and what could, might be. So you know, it's like if you look at a book and you think, "Oh, that's not that's not the book I was thinking about." It's you know, it's that book. You know, that that highlights into consciousness. But you know, with Buddhism and meditation in general, there are a lot of more subtle levels of awareness that don't really have a that kind of uh, focus. It's, it's more of a dissolving awareness of a general sense of what's going on, so, you know, so, sort of tapering off into, uh, you know, almost subliminal perception. And so, so you know, what, how much, you know, at what level a, a cell might be feeling things, you know, it's, you know, it's a fascinating question. You know, in Stan Groff's work in transpersonal psychology, when people take psychedelics to do holotropic breath work, they often report that, you know, everything is, con everything is consciousness, everything, you know, cells are alive and, they, and they're conscious. And I'm, I'm, I'm still a little skeptical about that. I, I tend to think that maybe we take our consciousness of them as being alive and sort of mm -hmm. think that that means that they're conscious, but, you know, pe people report that and, you know, but they can't, they can't talk to us yet, except in, yeah. to our, in our unconscious. So it's hard to know. Yeah. Well, this is maybe a good way to segue into Carpenter's first sight because the main thing that he's getting at in his theory, which is a psychological theory, is that there are unconscious processes and basically things going on in our mentation, in our experience, and that psi is one of these things. Um, to just comment a bit on unconscious experience, so first he he points out, well, it might be weird to it might it might seem weird to be to, to say that there are such things as unconscious experiences that have some level of experience, like it seems like a contradictory term to have an unconscious experience because you'd think that an experience by, by definition, at least as we think about it, must be conscious. But he, then he gives examples that make it pretty obvious that no, you don't have to think about, like, think about it like that because we experience all sorts of things and we even make decisions that we later realize or come to realize weren't actually conscious. It could be a decision you make to, to turn away from a, an oncoming vehicle that you, that you don't realize you've made until after you've made it. Or it can be a, a response that you have to the environment of something that you haven't noticed. And only later do you notice that there was like something that, you know, made you nervous and made you start to sweat and your heartbeat, um, pick up, uh, you know, its rate of, of beating and um, so there are processes that uh, there's the the whole thing about priming psychological priming that that pr 
provokes a, an actual response that seems to be one that would be that would accom accompany some kind of conscious experience, which doesn't. So basically, just at, at the very beginning, he kind of establishes for the reader that unconscious experiences exist. There does seem that you know Freud was right about this that there does seem to be something something un, uh, an unconscious realm to the mind um, that that operates as if it was conscious, but that we are not conscious of. Um, maybe just a quick comment before we get in some more to, to first sight about what you were, the, you know, the problem that you're having that I also share about trying to think about, well, how, con how, how aware is uh, a cell or a, you know, a multi, uh, just a, a, a simple multicellular organism or, or going further down than that, you know, an organelle or an atom or a molecule. Um, I think it's, it's well. I, there, there's a, a part in Process and Reality um, where where Whitehead talks about this. I can't remember how exactly he says it, but every time I um, I, I read that, it's it, it's it's never quite satisfying, right? There's there's always a question in my mind because I, I think that well, there must be coming back to the the Nagel question. There must be something it's like to to be like that. Maybe it's just that um, you know for. For our consciousness, let's say here's the all of the, the the consciousnesses or types of awareness out of which we are composed, like our cells and our molecules and our subatomic particles and our organs and all of these things. And then here's our mind, the things that we're consciously aware of. Well, we're consciously aware of whatever enters that like thin film of of the the film screen of awareness. Well, if you were like to to somehow remove that thin screen, would it be possible to? to inhabit, you know, one of your organs or, uh, you know, or, or a cell and to actually have a different type of experience. I think maybe that's, that's a question or that would be best investigated by, you know, people doing psychedelics in a lab or something, as opposed to <laughs> trying to think about them because, um, because it, because it, it, well, it, it's just, it's hard to, it's difficult to imagine one way or the other, you know, as I said, you know, in, in some of Stan Groff's books where he classifies ranges of experiences that people have in, in non-ordinary states or holotropic states, as he likes to call them. You know, have people with ex diamond consciousness or consciousness of oil, you know, that, uh, um, and once again, I, I don't quite know what to make of those things. Um, I, I, when you were talking, I was thinking of... Uh, the, you know, some of the examples I give of what uh, prehensions might might feel like, you know, these basic primary ways, or, or how do you know how we feel them is, you know, sensations in the body. Mm -hmm. You know, when when you get a when you you get that little, you know, uh, goosebumps when you know you, you know you see something, you know, someone getting cut uh, surgery on TV, or um, you know, what, what, when you're having a sexual arousal, you know, these these basic body sensations that seem to flow, flow, you can, I mean, you feel them in, in your body, but they also seem to almost flow into your conscious awareness or, or I would add uh, rushes, you know, you know, up the, the little rush up the spine mm. that, that occurs now and then, you know, there, I think, there, I think you're coming close to feeling to, to the, to what, what the nerves are feeling mm. and what the body is feeling at, at a, at a, at a much more primitive level. Mm -hmm. And you know, and it's uh, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of thrilling. You know, it's it's a little like what you know what you said about the electron being excited. Yeah. You know, these are, and of course, you've got the pain things too. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the feelings are very, you know, the, the, these sensations are very like blunt, you know, they, they aren't, they aren't complex They're you know, but they're more powerful f- for that, for that, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, well I, 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 want, yeah. So I wanted to ask something about uh, this entire framework that that's presented in the book, because uh, you're affirming a lot of ideas that, um, that acknowledge a non-physical reality that acknowledge uh, psi-ability and prehension and, and um, natural abilities that would expand our understanding of how consciousness works, but for which there are a whole uh, number of people in, in the fields of science, uh, psychology, sociology, uh, that would completely dismiss these ideas out of hand. Um, and it's the, you know, it's this classic, uh, materialist versus non-materialist, uh, conflict that we see in academia, uh, and, and, and being played out in various other, um, areas. And, and we understand that there is a certain, um, orthodoxy, uh, brainwashing, um, uh, propaganda, uh, tradition and in, in contemporary science and philosophy that that seeks to uh, dismiss a, a lot of these ideas that that you and and the professors and the people that have contributed to this book are, are seeking to affirm and and to reconceptualize and and to uh, hopefully introduce in a way that makes it more accessible to a larger audience and just make things better but all of this by way of asking you, John, if, if um, so we know that a, a lot of the uh, opponents of these ideas that, that, dis- that are dismissive uh, are the way they are because of their indoctrination into uh, their points of view. But what I wanted to ask you is this, do you think that there are some individuals who are however intelligent uh, in the fields of science and philosophy and, and, and academia. Do you think that there are some people that are constitutionally incapable of connecting to these ideas, of affirming them in the spirit that you present them in? In my endeavors, I don't encounter a lot of people like that. So, so I, I haven't had a lot of conversations. I tend to think that if that in public that might be the case, but I think if you talk to people, you know, one on one or in an informal setting, that you know most people are going to be willing to admit that you know although they argue for complete determinism, yeah, well, you know, I don't really believe that you know in my daily life, you know, this are the the, the uh, what what Hume laid out that you know there's there's really there's no way of knowing that there's any causality. There's uh, any time. There's a, you know all, all these things that you can't prove because of, well his sensationalist approach, but in in, in practice all these things are you know, are true. So I, I you know I I think you get that kind of divide in some people, which by the way I think is one of the more interesting things David Griffin argues for our hardcore common sense, that you know which Whitehead you know, also says that there's certain basic features of human experience that you have to be able to account for in a general system, such as uh, 
causality, that there's some kind of temporal order um, that, you know, that we experience some kind of freedom. You know, it, you know it, if you can't account for these in a system, something's missing, something's lacking. And, and, but, but I think there are people who are willing to say, well, you know, that's true, but for, you know, for what I'm doing in science, uh, I'm going to, this framework works, be, works best and I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it till somebody shows me something better. Mm -hmm. but, well, but, but there are some people who, are, who argue in a formal setting who argue pretty damn hard you know, that, that, that this is ridiculous. You know, this is silly stuff. And, you know, mm -hmm. Get get real, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that that that's exactly what I mean. That and and not only do they say that, but they are so vociferous in their points of view, and they're so prejudicial and um, and go on the the offensive. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake is mentioned earlier in in the book that um, you you have to wonder, you know, is there something more to it? Uh, with them or, or less to it, you know, that, that they, that there's something intrinsic to them as, as people that, that these ideas would strike them as so wrongheaded or, or is it just their conditioning as thinkers? Maybe the closest thing we'll have to finding out what it feels like to be pure matter is to interview some of those individuals. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> yeah. I, I have, I, I have to admit, um, now that as I've gotten older and, and now actually relatively old, I, I do understand how people can get committed to a particular system and, and you know, not, not be really open to a lot of change on that because you, you're worn out thinking new stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what's, what's the phrase that uh, you don't change you know, scientists and philosophers' minds, you just wait till that generation dies off so new ideas can come in? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think I think there's a lot of truth to that, and uh, and I think some people, you know, I think that accounts for a lot of what you're talking about. People just get set in their ways, and and you don't, you know, you don't want to hear you've been wrong for 40 years. You know, right. that's that's a bit discouraging, to, you know, to know. Yeah, on or, such or a think about. on such a basic fundamental level, you know. About, you know uh, one thing that's wonderful about Whitehead was you know describing speculative philosophy. I think part of the reason metaphysics fell into, into disrepute was that they were looking for absolute certainty or kind apodictic certainty as, as Kant called it. And, you know, which, <coughs> which is a pretty extravagant, uh, you know, claim. So, so Whitehead in speculative, he sees speculative philosophy in the same way he sees science as an evolving system of ideas that changes with time, gets better. You, you discard parts of it that are shown to be uh, uh, not work as well and, and bring in new ideas that work better, which is really what he did with his analysis of the history of philosophy. He drew on the, you know, the ideas that he thought were great from the great philosophers and, um, and you know, tried to correct what he saw as, as their weaknesses. Uh, Charles Hartshorn, one of his students, has a great book called Insights and Oversights of Great Thinkers which I, you know, I think captures that exactly. But you know, he didn't think he'd found the final answers or that his system was perfect. You know, it was the best that you know, he could do at this point in time with the information available. Mm. Well, let's get into some parapsychology, some, some psi stuff, because I think we've mentioned some of the important background ideas now, like, like prehension, um, like pan-experientialism, um, 
what Carpenter proposes is, um, well, a bit more background just for, we'll link to the interview that we did with Carpenter, um, but quick introduction for those who haven't heard it or watched it yet is that he basically proposes a proposes using the term prehension which he borrows from whitehead but but via a secondary source so um he hadn't even read whitehead but when when he chose to use that idea um, which is interesting as you show in your paper because there are so many other similarities between the conclusions carpenter came to and the system that um that whitehead developed but he uses this idea of prehension as a a kind of basic idea for the for understanding psi because he argues that psi is not um, like a, a super ability or even an ability like you have your conscious self and then you might have this this superpower that allows you in, in certain moments to to access other information or to influence um, physical systems that are or other beings that are around you in some way um, not through um, the not through the senses not through physical touch of some sort. And that psi is actually, like Whitehead says with prehension, it is a subconscious process. It is a, it is a more primitive, more primary um, process that's going on. The way Carpenter describes it is that, is that it is the leading edge of consciousness. It's what takes place before the events set in motion to create a conscious experience. So that kind of, it kind of flips it upside down. That's why he calls it first sight as opposed to second sight. Like, um, you know, when you have a, an aunt who has the second sight, right, who, who might have certain abilities and, that, and uh, <clears throat> another power, a second type of, of perception, of non-sensory perception. No, Carpenter says that it, it only makes sense if you think about it as the primary mode of experience that is unconscious like subliminals so so there is a just as we are influenced all the time by subliminal information that causes us to react in some way we're processing it on some level um, just like we are primes in a subliminal psychology experiment our bodies are reacting in certain ways are they're getting prepared for certain actions um, certain ideas and sets of meanings are being um, being made more accessible to our minds so that we might, let's say, react quicker to words of one sort as opposed to words of another sort. It's like we're being prepped for something. And this is just primes. And uh, what Carpenter is saying is that this is, this is kind of the, it's the same, it's the same type of thing going on with psi, except it's even before sensory information. So psi is what is preparing us for uh, for sensory information that will then be um, combined and transmuted into our conscious experience. So that's basically what Carpenter proposes. Um, John, could you could you comment on that with with how that how Carpenter's theory of what's going on matches up with what Whitehead was talking about? Well, you know, the basic notion of of psi did, did well to choose prehension because I believe they you would envision them operating in a similar way. Um, you know, Whitehead calls uh, conscious sensory perception a derivative mode of perception, with uh, just as he as he would that you know that it arises out of the unconscious processing that uh, begins with the prehensions of uh, well, of, of the brain largely. Um, and one's own past experience. 
Um, and I, I would think that, you know, that's where psi and parapsychological phenomena would, would arise also in, in a Whiteheadian scheme if, uh, you know, Whitehead said telepathy was possible in his scheme. He didn't, you know, that was as far as he went. It was, you know, was, you'd have to see if it was real or not, but it was, it was a possibility. Um, yeah, I, I mentioned in my chapter that, that I'm not quite sure if I would go the, characterize uh, mind-brain interaction as psi interaction as he does. Although in a sense that, you know, that, that's, that's accurate in that you're, you're this, the, the actual occasion of the psyche is feeling the neural events of the brain, but it seems to me that that's such a fundamental feature that you might not want to conflate that with psi, psi phenomena. I, I think that might be confusing to people who are trying to think of it as parapsychology as something's different than mind-brain interaction. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite certain how, um, how James thinks about the, the more, more deeply about how the, what, what the events of the, of the mind are. You know, at, at times he's, he's talks about mind-brain you know, interaction. So there must be something there, but I don't know how, quite how he conceives of the unconscious portion, how much of the unconscious is neural activity and how much is, mm -hmm. is something going on in the subjective moment of the, of the psyche. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be curious to find out more about how he conceives of that. I, I don't think he probably goes into, I, I think his energies are going more into accounting for parapsychology than, than detailed, uh, you know, uh, neuro, neuro neuropsychology or neuroscience. Yeah, hmm. but I think Whitehead offers a, a nice way of conceiving that. Right, and yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up in the in the paper because the if there's an advantage to the to the whole mind brain thing and in comparison with with psi, it is showing that um, that. If the two exist, you know, in a certain philosophical system or in reality, then they, then there is a, then there's something similar between the two of them. They would operate in a similar way, even if they're, they're it's not, even if it might not be the right idea to think about them as, as the same process, because in, in Whitehead's system, there is the, you know, there's the, how does he put it there? When there, a being is basically uh, many plus one. You know, so we're composed of all of the all of the the things that we are composed of, whether cells or organs or neurons and everything. Um, and then there is one unity that kind of unifies all of those things that creates a, a being, a person. And so there is an interaction between that person, which is that the experience, the like the unified experience of that person, and everything underneath it. So that would be that's the way. Uh, now, correct cor correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the way I see. Um, the the account that's the way I see process philosophy accounting for the mind brain interaction that the like the mind the psyche is that that top unifying um, whole that encompasses all of the all of the experiences and like uh, and bits and pieces of experience underneath it like first of all do, would you say that that's close to accurate yeah yes I would and I'd also mention I, I may be slow but it took me quite a while to sort of get that into my head that that's what he was talking about okay. that there's you know it, it's not that the yeah i had an i had an argument with a philosopher friend of mine well we we're having a so much heated discussion because he wanted to say 
that Whitehead thinks that the mind and the brain are, you know, just are, are two different sides, you know, are Janus face, are two different sides of the same coin. And we went back and forth. I said, well, not really, because, you know, the, you know, the, the, the psychic occasions have their own reality and are interacting, you know, with, with the neural occasions that, you know, they're not, they're closely related, but they're, they have their own thing going on. And we went back and forth. And uh, I, I, I finally said, you know, I, I don't, I don't care if you, believe it. I just want you to know what Whitehead's saying. I, 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 and, he, and he was somebody who taught Whitehead. So, so <laughs> it's not, you know, it can, it can be a little difficult. You know, at least I, I think I have the right sense there, but it, it can be difficult to, to, to uh, conceive that at first, because yeah. it's, it's, it's a really different way of thinking about it. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. And it, it is weird too, but, but the, but so we, when you have that this structure, you've got the mind that then is prehending the um, the occasions of the the neural structure of the brain, right? So we've got all this sensory data passing through the body, all these nerves and all kinds of kinds of information that are going you know, through our spinal column into the brain, and then bouncing around different parts of the brain um, that seem to be specialized for different types of information and different types of processing, and then somehow that is all constantly and repeatedly being transformed somehow into the to, to, into what enters our our consciousness which is excluding a whole lot of information right so when we're experiencing something we're excluding all types of of like visual data auditory data like we're we're focusing and attending to a very narrow sliver of the of even the sensory data that we're getting from the world around us not to mention all of the data from our bodies we're getting tons of tons of data from our digestion and our, and our posture and what's going on in our, in our, you know, the, the little, you know, the, the little toe on our right foot, everything is being experienced on some level, but it's being experienced consciously. And only a certain, only a certain fraction of that actually enters consciousness. So we and have, go ahead. And I think it's important to add that not only is there all this data flowing in through the brain and the body that, that we aren't experiencing, but we also then the, the, the moment of the occasional experience of the psyche is also almost mostly unconscious. So, you know, the consciousness is just this tiny film on top of the unconsciousness of the occasion and on top of all the stuff that's not being, make it into the experience in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, so we've got a, what essentially is a non-sensory prehension or a non-sensory perception, however you want to think about it, of of let's say your this physical body and everything's going into it. Now the the comparison with psi would be that there's a similar non-sensory perception or prehension going on with the world around you. So the what Whitehead's philosophy is saying is that the 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 being the the um, like the occasion of experience the 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 experience or the the subject in any given case is like you said at the beginning of the show receiving information from the entire cosmos the entire universe um all past occasions and all past occasions means like the 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 progressive series of who you have been for your entire existence but everything impinging on you and everything impinging on everything else so there's this almost infinitude of information that is that is being um that any entity is being bombarded with at every at every given moment and just uh, just as the conscious mind excludes all kinds of information from the occasion and from all of the unconscious processes of the other occasions 
within it that there is there has to be a process going on that like a massive selection process where like if you were looking at a, a pie chart you've got your pie chart and all of the information you know that's that's hitting you would be the, the chart and the the amount that you that you actually deem relevant for in every every given situation is just going to be the thinnest line like like a minuscule microscopic line in this pie chart that won't even well you wouldn't even be able to see it on a pie chart unless the pie chart was the you know the size of the universe um so but but that's what that's what it seems to me that both carpenter and whitehead are saying is that at any given moment we're getting all information essentially and for carpenter the the mind then on an unconscious level sorts and values all of that information and says okay for for me or for for my for for my body for my being at this moment all of this stuff is unimportant you know it doesn't it doesn't serve my purposes um it's not meaningful to me in any way so stuff going on on other planets and other galaxies stuff going on in other countries stuff going on in other houses you know stuff going on in that other room all irrelevant for me in this moment um, for me, what's really important for me right now is just that I, you know, cook this meal and eat it because I need to survive. I need to, I, I need to live. So the, the, the consciousness experienced in that moment will be limited to that tiny, tiny subset of, of data, mostly limited to the body and the immediate environment, which is sensed via the body. But what Carpenter's saying is that all that information is still on on some level it has to be judged relevant or irrelevant meaningful or not meaningful useful or not useful and there are instances where that other information that's not associated with your immediate environment um, that can be sensed with your body will be important will be will be meaningful like the example you gave of was it your your uh your mother in world war ii her, her, yes her yeah brother. and her brother right where there is there is a, a highly meaningful event that is taking place somewhere else on the planet and we talked about this with carpenter too these types of experiences that is then um th that will then impinge itself on consciousness in some way in some um inadvertent um unconscious way right because as far as she knew at that moment um it was just a dream she couldn't prove that it happened she didn't have absolute knowledge of what had happened yet it's like when you have a dream a dream like that it it seems to me that the like well what carpenter would argue is that when you have a dream like that you can't say for sure you can say oh well you know i have a feeling that this is important i have a feeling that this may is probably true but it's only when you get the call or the letter that it becomes true you know because you it may not become it may not be confirmed in the real world and then you think about it and say oh well, you know what might be the significance of that dream that i have what what was it trying to tell me the, because it wasn't it wasn't telling me that um, you know my brother was killed in the theater of war maybe there had some other meaning right so so that meaning then is is prehended on a very basic level and then comes into conscious consciousness in this inadvertent way at least that's how how carpenter is presenting that type of information Did, does he say that there's psi is guiding our experience all the time yes I'm not, I'm not quite sure, you know, from what, in, in Whitehead's system and process and reality, there's a, there's a prehension of the central, so of God, of the primordial nature of God, which is the, the, uh, his, God's um, envisagement of all possibilities. So in a sense, it's how things are and how, th how 
God might want things to, to go, to flow, what, what he might think would be interesting to have happen in the world. And, and, and each moment at the beginning of your new occasion, that, that God is one of the things that's felt. And that's known as the initial aim. That, that's, that gives a, possi a possible way of you know, fulfilling something that might be fruitful. And, and, and the occasion may or may not adopt it in part or whole, or you know, may just do whatever it happens to feel like. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what, you know, most of the time it doesn't seem as if sci information be all that rel relevant to what we're, you know, I'm doing a moment to moment. Mm -hmm. It seems like it'd be more of an occasional thing than what guides every moment of experience. I, I'm not quite sure if I'm well, understanding Jim properly. Well, that you know, maybe I'm not either, but uh, that I had the same kind of thoughts that you just expressed when I first read his book. Um, but when I was rereading parts of it and reading his his entry in here, and after talking with him, the impression I got was that he was saying that um, that the 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 experiences we call psi, you know, like these extraordinary or out of the ordinary experiences, are actually kind of anomalous um, anomalous ex anomalous experiences of a process that is going on all of the time, basically. So he's, there's a type of perception that is going on all of the time that only expresses or uh, expresses itself as psi in these certain occasions. Um, what I think he means by that is that, um, well, at one point he, uh, let me see if I took a note for it. Well, my note for it, like my paraphrase of, of what I um, what I got from it was that just like um, primes are necessary to to activate certain processes um, in our bodies and to prepare ourselves, you know, for doing certain things, psi is necessary to prepare ourselves for primes. So I don't know if he said this said this um, explicitly, but the impression I get just from the the various things he does say about it and that it is a process going on all the time is that psi is for him. On the on the basic most general level is what's going on in order to basically connect the the mind with the the information in the world and that information will primarily be stuff about the body um, but sometimes isn't about the body it's just that because um, I think he gives an evolutionary argument because the because we are so focused on survival and um, and this you know, the survival of our physical body, and that's that's the, the mode of our experience, basically. That's why um, experience is so so narrowly channeled to to just our body, as opposed to constantly being aware of everything all the time, right? It, it is it is focused and um, and limited to our body. So that's the information that that we mostly get um, um, into our consciousness, but that sometimes. I, uh, the way I'd put it, sometimes that stuff going on in the other room is just as important or more important as what's happening to our bodies now. So the impression I get is that when he's talking about psi, he's essentially saying maybe that psi is the equivalent of something like um, Whitehead's most basic level of prehension, like physical prehension, or um, I don't, I don't, something like that, basically. Yeah, yeah, I, I, th I think that's right, and I, and I you know, definitely think that we, you know, from, from a Whiteheading point of view, with physical prehensions, we are always feeling the entire world and taking that into account. And I mean, from from the way he uses it, that would also be how we're feeling our, you know, our brain and neural cells. So in that sense, it would also be initiating uh, 
uh, you know, experience in every moment. I just wasn't quite sure about how that, you know, for, for how that would guide every moment of experience necessarily. But I mean, it would give a general picture, but I didn't know if it would give a specific direction to every mm -hmm. moment. Oh, yeah. The, the, well, let me see. Maybe I'm going to look for for something in one of his papers. Did you? Did either of you guys have a question while I look for that? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I did read his book, but now it's been about five years since yeah. I read, read, read his whole book. So. Well, did you and, read and, it? You know, yeah. yeah, that isn't a vital issue, I don't think. I'll, I'll probably get a call tonight explaining it to me, <laughs> yeah. or as soon as he sees this. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I had a quick question for you, John. Um, in your chapter, you mentioned uh, this idea of transmutation. Uh, could you flesh that out a little bit? Um, you know, Carpenter's description of the pro of the pro unconscious processing that goes on uh, be before our consciousness is very similar to what Whitehead is actually shockingly similar to what Whitehead describes. You know, in in the first phase, there's a this general re uh, reception of data and feeling flows into the new occasion, and then in uh, in certain certain aspects of these of these feelings are either heightened or diminished. You know, so certain parts of these things are are deemed relevant for what, how that's going to be processed in that moment. And then those elements are combined in various ways and, you know, in various complex interconnections to, um, uh, to create a more, more sort of compacted focused experience, which then, you know, ends up with um, sometimes a conscious ex uh, experience, but in transmutation in particular, the idea is that we experience a lot of individual data, you know, such as, you know, uh, even just on our retinal, we have all these different little picture, you know, little pic pixels of of, inf of information about of color, mm -hmm. and, uh, we, and you know, if you were looking at you know a rock, you'd have all kinds of you know billions of molecules, uh, uh, patches of color. And in, and what the you know what the what the brain and the psyche do is pull that together, blend it all together into a unified picture. So you get a you get a a a splotch of gray instead of you know a, a billion molecules floating around. <laughs> so so the transmutation is a is a pulling together into a unified, easier digestible picture of the universe. Like a nice user interface. Like Facebook could really take a, a cue from <laughs> from whoever designed our brains. Do, do I, I think I use the example of, uh, of of painting, don't I, in my in my chapter? Of, yeah, painting of uh, was it Seurat, the the pointillist? Yeah. yeah so, you know, if you're up close looking at one of those things, it's hard to tell what it is because there's just too much individual information. So it's a summing up of information into a unified picture, mm. in fact. So that's one of the, well, first, or no, I'll, I'll get back. To, I found the quote, I was thinking about it, but I wanted to, to go on what we guys were just talking about, that uh, that's one of the the cool things about Whitehead is um, that he, he, he seems to, 
um, reconcile opposites. Like there is, uh, or reconcile things that that would seem irreconcilable, like free will and determinism. One of the things he says in, I believe, Modes of Thought is that you know one of the goals of philosophy should be to uh, to create a to create a, a worldview or a system in which we can think about and account for both freedom and um, determinism, like a, a kind of like a physical causality and a final causality, um, but also. Um, um, well, I forget. There, there was one more that was Im- implicit in what you guys were saying about. Uh, oh, yeah, like the the, um, the the subjectivity of a of an experience and its objectivity. You know, because the, that's been a, a debate in philosophy too, right? That everything is either subjective or, or objective, and uh, and uh, but he reconciles that that there is an ob- an objectivity to the world, and there is a, an objective. Um, or like real process that is going on when we are perceiving something, when we are when we are sensing it, because there is an actual incorporation of that of that data into oneself, and then there is the subjective form that it takes, um, subjective and and habitual form that it takes in our actual experience of it. So there are, so he he basically he, like we said earlier, it's his system is an attempt to account for all of those. Not only all of the things in the universe, all of the stages of how they are, they are, they are those experiences are formed, and all of the levels that uh, the levels of experience that are going on in order to create that, you know, that unified experience of of what we experience at any given moment. And there are, t- you know, infinite different, an infinite number of different types of experiences that we can experience at any given moment. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's I, I think that is a really important feature. You know, the, and. Um, the you know I think to to portray objects as as thing past completed events which are then felt as they you know por- portions of them impact the new experience so that's objective reality enters in and then there's subjective transmutation and transformation of that and then at the completion that experience becomes an object to be felt by future events and so you have you know you have a movement of objectivity and subjectivity. And the deterministic portion is, you know, the, the the past impacts us, but then there's a subjective transformation. So there's also, especially depending on the complexity of the occasion, you know, and, and Adam doesn't have a, probably do a lot of transformation. That's why they last for billions of years. You know, they re, re, they repeat, you know, they're repetitive. And, and a lot of humans are repetitive too, including me a lot of the time, you know, uh, but we also have subjective, you know, uh, creative transformation at times. Um, I I should have. What was I? I was going to add something about transmutation that I felt like I'd neglected. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, the idea did repeat often enough. It's gone again. But I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you know if it returns. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we can jog the memory by getting into some uh, some ideas from the paper. Uh, I, uh, first, I'll read that paragraph that I was thinking of that in our. And what we were talking about just before about the you know psi creating um, creating experience in, in a sense or leading to the creation of, of all experience <clears throat> so carpenter writes uh, every bit of experience and behavior has a very rapid pre-conscious history for example every perception is preceded by a host of subliminal prehensions of sensory information that are unconsciously assessed and holistically combined 
Subliminal prehension is itself preceded by unconscious consultation of extrasensory prehensions that are also assessed and holistically merged. Subliminal prehensions guide and and orient the development of conscious experience. Similarly, extrasensory prehensions orient the appraisal and use of subliminal sensory prehensions. All of these prehensions are assessed within the context of the particular and general objectives of the person whose mind is doing this constructing. Extrasensory prehensions initiate the constructive engagement with reality. They come first, hence they are our first sight. So the one, like one of the most important points in there for what we were just talking about is extrasensory prehensions orient the appraisal and use of subliminal sensory prehensions. So he's basically saying that, um, that we've got conscious experience on one level, we've got our subliminal experiences, which are all of the things that our body is picking up on, our senses are picking up on, that we're not yet conscious of and might never become conscious of, and that it is psi that orients the, um, orients the mind towards those, um, those sensory data. So it's basically without the psi in the equation, we would have no data to um, to to um, let's see. We would have no access to subliminal data to prepare ourselves for conscious experience. So he's basically saying that's the most important level. Um, it's totally unconscious. It's totally subliminal. But that is the initiating moment, uh, the initiation, initiating stage of consciousness that then gets constructed out of subliminal um, perception and results in conscious experience. That's the way I read it. Mm. I, I, you know, once again, just from the sweat heading perspective, I'm not sure that I would differentiate uh, the size subliminal perceptions from the perceptions of the, of the you know, brain and neural activity that present the sensory. They would seem to be flowing in, in, at, this, in the same, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I wasn't quite, you know, if you, by subliminal perceptions, he means later phases of unconscious processing that, then I would agree that the initial physical prehensions are, are, you know, are informing that and, and guiding that. But, uh, you know, this, this is just, you know, yeah. this is some technical whiteheading stuff. I'm not sure that that's, yeah, well, but we'll I mean, have... it, does, it does bear on how much sigh, uh, you know, how much our extrasensory perception from the external world guides the internal processes, whether that's a constant affair or, or more of an occasional one, I think. Mm. Okay. But well, by the way, what I was going to say about transmutation oh, was that I, I think mm. I think the brain may do more of the of the processing of the especially visual and sensory images than was known at Whitehead's time. You know, the, the neural the neurophysiology was relatively primitive then. So I, th- I think we've discovered that there's a lot more of this of what you'd call transmutation probably going on in the brain cells themselves. And and that's then absorbed and takes a little of the pressure off of the uh, of this of the of the occasions of the psyche to have to do a lot of you know all that work uh, in in each moment and rather you can draw on the you know power of the brain to get a lot of that done in advance as it were. Very good. All right, John. Well, I think we're gonna end it right about there. I, I want to read one sentence near the end of end of your paper that kind of uh, the paraphrase of Whitehead's ultimate principle. And then uh, if you have anything to say about it, 
uh, we can go ahead. Otherwise, we'll we'll just call it a call it a day. So to paraphrase to paraphrase Whitehead's ultimate principle, the many become one. Then the new one joins that many in an everlasting process. In, in an everlastingly process. Oh, it might be a typo there, but uh, but yeah, in an everlasting process. So anything to say about that? Well, I think it's quite a beautiful vision of the universe as this, uh, as an adventure and as a uh, as a creative advance. Where though you, I, I, I kind of picture the, uh, you, you know, the patterns on the water when there's some waves and the sun's hitting it and there's all that sparkling going on, uh, on across the top of the water. I, that's kind of how I picture the the ocean of feeling. You know, it's just the, all these flashes going on, and of course they combine in you know in, in in our universe into much more complex levels and individuals but i, I you know there uh, there are all those fo- the excitement of the photon photons and i think we can say the excitement of the cells and the molecules and the brains and uh i, I love that and and speaking of uh of minds i of mine I, I i you know i went to your website and saw the, all the interviews you're doing and it's so great to have, have some people who are interested in, in these ideas that are, I think, so important, but a little outside the mainstream. And, and I have to say, you guys are not only, you're very extremely well-informed. I was a little intimidated after hearing you read 10 of David Griffin's books. So <laughs> I, I really appreciate this opportunity. No, it's, it's been a pleasure having you and it's been fun, John. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, well, once again, the book is Rethinking Consciousness, uh, edited by John Buchanan and Christopher Anstus. Yes. All right. Forward by Stanley Krepner. So you can get this one. Uh, I, pick, I picked it up on Amazon. It's good. It's got all kinds of cool papers. I mean, a bunch of stuff that, of course, we didn't talk about, but lots of interesting stuff on consciousness and parapsychology and Whitehead and various other topics. So check that one out. Is there anything else uh, that you've written that people can get a hold of, John? Uh, there's some chapters in books, but I won't, I won't bother with that. I may have a book coming out at some point in the relatively near future, but no title on that yet. All right. Well, you'll keep us updated and then when there's news, we'll talk. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care, John. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure.